0: Tonight, I was supposed to talk about the wilderness of anger. Some of you might wonder what that means. Why is anger a wilderness? Actually, in the sutras, the Buddha refers to the wretchedness of anger. And I'm sure everyone here has experienced that wretchedness at some point or another. And if you haven't experienced it yet, you may. The human condition is such that someday we're bound to experience disappointment and suffering. That's just the truth of this realm, as the, the nature of the human realm is like this. Tonight I'd like to just go over some of the reasons why anger causes us so much misery, and how some of the ways that we might try to work with it. I'd like to start by telling you a little story from the American Indian tradition. An American Indian elder describes his inner struggle in this way. He says, inside me there are two dogs. One dog is kind and good, and the other dog is mean and evil. The mean dog fights the good dog all the time. And when people ask me, which dog wins, what do you think he says? Which dog wins? Anybody? <laughs> they live in harmony. <laughs> they in Yes. The one that I feed the most is the one that wins. The one that I feed the most. So that's a good contemplation for us. If you have a very easy inclination to get angry, maybe you can contemplate if there are these two dogs running around inside each of us, and I think there are, in different ways, in different measure, with different level of balance, maybe for a few years, very good balance, and then suddenly you start feeding the anger more, the angry dog more. And when we feed the angry dog, why do we do that? Why do we... What makes us feed anger? What is anger anyway? Well, anger is an energy in the mind, it's a, a response in the mind to conditions, a particular kind of response. It's it's an aversive response. It's aversion. In fact, you'll notice that the opposite of all the Brahmaviharas, the opposite of metta is ill will. The opposite of compassion, or the enemy of compassion is non-compassion or cruelty. The opposite of sympathetic joy is jealousy, envy. The opposite of equanimity, well, the enemy of equanimity is indifference. Just coldness. Not engaging at all. So all of these things If you examine them carefully, in fact, they all contain in them ill will. Some kind of aversion. When you're angry, what do you normally experience? Some kind of heat, maybe a tightening contraction in the body, like um, a, a choking sensation in your throat, or a headache, or you sometimes you might feel like you're going to jump out of your skin. Does anyone here experience... Does this sound familiar? No, not me. I never get angry. <laughs> but we do. It could be something so simple as your computer breaking down. That's not simple, is it? because everything is in your computer, all all the information. So if the computer freezes or breaks down, how will you know what you're supposed to do tomorrow? Or how will you be able to get in touch with your friends? Or conduct your business, even more important, practical concerns. So it's very easy to get nervous and stressed. That's one of the most common things Remember yesterday I was telling you the story about the, those of you who were here, about the woman in the airport who was having a fight with her husband, and they were screaming at each other. And their faces were so ugly. They really look, I know they're beautiful in some way, but when we're angry our face doesn't look very nice. Some people are so angry at life that they just walk around with their mouth curved downwards all the time. Now everyone's going to (laughs) wonder, what what does my face look like? So the face is a very good window of the mind. And if we're angry, then it's not, not easy to hide that. If you're angry all the time, you may not even notice after a while, because you get used to it it's a negative mind state, it's a very wretched, miserable state of mind and we feed this angry dog because somehow anger makes us feel alive somehow if we feel angry at least we feel like we're experiencing life but that's delusory it's a delusion, we might be experiencing it, but it's not a skillful way to experience life If you're angry, then the result of your being angry, of our being angry, is that you may alienate people. They may not want to spend time with you. Or you may frighten them. And they may want to keep their distance. If you've noticed your friends not calling you recently, (laughs) or... not coming round. Maybe you have to examine your moods or your behavior. Sometimes we are not aware of how angry we sound. Like, how much complaining do you do in your conversations with people? If we're not aware of how angry we we are, one way to become aware is just to pay attention to the contents of your conversation. Do you spend a lot of time complaining about your job, complaining about the weather, complaining about your neighbors, complaining about your wife, about your husband, your children, your parents, your your income, your the finances, complaining about the government, about politics, about other people, about your weight, about your health? Now I'm not saying, there's nothing morally wrong about complaining. But we're just, we're trying to understand here the ways that we feed the angry dog. And why we end up being dominated and ruled by those angry thoughts, angry feelings in our hearts. And why this good, good, kind dog that lives inside of us, doesn't get a chance to say anything. This is just a metaphor that I'm carrying on about from the American Indian elder. Not that there is really a a nice dog and a mean dog in us. It's just as a way of speaking. So if you notice that you're complaining about, then what that means is that you've been overwhelmed by ill will. This, it becomes a habit. We may not even realize it. <laughs> it reminds me... Now, Anger is a very subtle thing, too. We may not even notice that we're angry, but we get impatient easily. If the bus doesn't come on time, if there's a lot of traffic, we easily lose our temper if things don't go well. Or if somebody talks in a way that we don't like, we may be jump down their throat quickly. We haven't got a lot of patience, or we have a quick temper. There's nothing um, bad, morally or ethically bad about that. But in terms of developing ourselves as Dhamma practitioners and as uh, people who are on the path of peace, shall we say, then we're not promoting number one, we're not promoting peace within ourselves, and we're certainly not promoting peace around us. So what kind of lovers of peace are we? But you see, awareness is a tremendous medicine for this anger. It's the very first thing we need to do when we may not be aware of how short a fuse we, we live with. I remember Um, When I first went to Myanmar and practiced, and Saira Upandita, who I keep dedicating the retreat to today, and may he be well and recover quickly from his surgery, I went for an interview during the retreat. And as I was describing my experience, Saira said to me, you're the angry type. And I said, no, I am not. (laughs) <laughs> and then I realized, oh, he's right, I am. You know, I went like that. My brow got very furrowed. We don't even realize, but he saw it. Other people see us better than we see ourselves. That's the advantage of having spiritual companions. If you're, or spiritual friends, if your friends are really your friends, then when you're angry, they will point out to you in a nice way. Gee, you're really angry today. But if they get angry at your anger, that's not helpful. But you can't blame them, too. (laughs) So that's the story of the American Indian elder and his two dogs. Oh, here's another nice thing. Anger is a poison that we continue to take thinking that it will kill the enemy. (laughs) but in fact it ends up killing us it kills us it kills our good mood it kills our goodness remember earlier today we talked about how we we don't we keep the precepts we don't commit banatipata no way but we keep killing ourselves with the poison of our own anger even though we want to practice metta, then the instructor tells us now just sit and say, may I be well, may I be happy, and generate metta to yourself. Then may you be well, may you be happy, generate metta to the next person. And you think, this is rubbish. I can't generate metta to anyone. That's because we keep feeding on the poison of our own anger. We have no patience. If we want to generate or cultivate or grow the goodwill in our hearts, this quality of kindness, we have to be more patient. We have to renounce having our own way. We have to realize that we, we have to stop thinking about ourselves. People who get angry easily, not always, but quite often often, are used to being in control, or else they're very self-centered, quite selfish. And there may be a reason for that. Maybe as kids, they didn't get enough. Enough attention, maybe even enough food. Maybe there was an older brother or a younger sister or someone else that got all the love. And so our anger is a kind of petition, isn't it? It's a tantrum, it's like the little kid having a tantrum all over again. Me, 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 what about me? Does this sound familiar? It might not be your predicament, but I know people like this. I know I've done it myself. When I, I want something and I'm not getting it. Then there's this little voice inside that starts waving frantically, jumping up and down. Me, what about me? And we're so used to feeding self. That's how we get ahead in life, unfortunately. If you want to get promoted, you've got to push yourself forward and call attention to yourself. But because we are ethically minded people, we don't want to do it in a way that would hurt anyone else. And if we do, if we try to get ahead in the world, Either have more success in in our work or in our studies, or um, achieving our goals, whatever they might be. Even if you want to get to work faster, you're going to you're going to be an, a reckless driver. Some people take their anger out on the road, and now there's a, a psychological description for this. It's called road rage. And I don't know if you have road rage here in Singapore. <coughs> but I think in countries where um, weapons are legal, there have been terrible violence come uh, as a result of road rage. So this poison that we think is going to kill the enemy not only kills us, but we may actually end up killing someone, if not causing them to have a heart attack or experience a tremendous trauma, psychological trauma, if not getting punched or brutalized by our nasty temper. Now, ill will can be come manifest in the mind and in the body also. So if you tend to experience a lot of disappointment, or you hang on to your grudge, and you just, you let the anger, the anger kind of dig a hole and install itself permanently, and you begin to believe in it. You think that this is, you've got a reason to be angry. So you have, this is called righteous anger, but in Buddhism, in the Buddhist dispensation, actually no anger is really righteous. Because why? how can something that's poison be right? Now we take the Buddha to be, be the supreme physician. In fact, he is our doctor. You may go to the doctor in, in a clinic to get medicine for your angry moods. Some people have to actually go to psycholo- psychological counseling to control their rage. Sometimes this rage is inherited. Some of you might think that it's because of some kind of family curse. Whatever the reason, the supreme physician, the Buddha, gives us the supreme medicine for this anger, and it doesn't come in the form of a pill. It comes in the form of a practice. This practice is about sila, Samadhi and Panya is the, path, the Noble Eightfold Path. There are several specific recommendations that we can follow, too broad just to say, if I practice goodness and I'm a moral person and then I practice meditation and I'm always aware of my anger and then I become very wise and I'll know how to deal with the anger. But if you have very strong anger come and you have many, many lifetimes or many years of practicing and responding to the ill will in your heart, those habits are difficult to decondition. The specific practices that we can use to decondition anger, one of them, of course, is when you feel some kind of negativity in your mind, try as much as possible to be aware that this is a thought. Instead of allowing this thought to overwhelm you, and believing in the anger as some kind of reality that you have to respond to. Maybe you can remember that anger is a mood in the mind. It's based on some thoughts that have come up about a situation, about conditions. It's a reaction to what's going on, or to what happened in the past. Basically, the angry feeling in your body and in your heart, and the angry thoughts are produced by some memory or some sight, something that has appeared in consciousness, which is brings up an association to something very hateful or upsetting, disturbing, and then the whole cycle begins. You don't like it, and you want to get rid of it. So anger is one attempt to overcome those conditions to fight back, to clear them, to get rid of the toxin, to overpower, to win. But then we feed it. Because hatred can never be overcome by hatred, but by love alone, we know from the Dhammapada. And this is an eternal law. It's not just for me or you or the people that come to this temple. It's for anyone, of any religion. It's for scientists, too, whether they believe it or not. It's for astronauts, for doctors, for uh, airplane pilots. It's for children, for old people, anyone. Awareness, to be aware, to recognize, aha, just like when I ran to Saito and I was all agitated and excited and he he recognizes personality type anger. And no, I am not. And we will say, no, I'm not angry. But the most important thing that we do on the road to recover, to recovery means to restore balance in the heart and to eliminate or let go of this angry energy is to realize that this is this is anger, this is ill-will, this is aggression, this is negativity. And right then and there, in the moment you see it, you are no longer that anger. You never were. But when you believe in it, that's when it has power over you. So we de- decondition this experience of negativity, of hostility, of darkness, in the mind of aggression by watching and observing just like we do in our meditation practice and consciously letting it go or consciously knowing it's not me it's it's impermanent it arises and ceases and it's suffering it's making me miserable I don't want this misery I want to be well I want to be happy I want to be free of this dukkha The other thing, of course, is that whose anger is it anyway? Because who is there? If we reflect on emptiness, on the emptiness of these khandhas, then we know there is no one there who owns this anger. This is, again, due to our mistaken understanding of who and what we are, this body and mind. So we know that consciousness is a process, and that the, the physical... Experience is another process. So consciousness observes what arises and ceases in the body and the mind. These are two processes interacting with each other. Consciousness knowing the anger. But the true nature of the mind is not anger. You see, the mind, the awareness is empty and anger passes through. Then it will disappear again. As long as we don't grasp it. But when we grasp it, we feed it. When we grasp it, we believe in it. When we cling to it, we take it to be ourselves. If you have comments to give each other, can you wait? I won't be angry. It's just polite, you know? Thank you. So that's one way that we can work with anger. And another thing, supposing you are, whether you're angry at yourself, maybe you're angry at yourself because you're angry. This is a real conundrum. Then we just recycle the garbage over and over again so that that mood just keeps going around and around in the mind, I'm angry again. But we have to have compassion for ourselves. Because the habit is very, very ancient, old habit, difficult to let go of, then we have to be patient. We have to understand how difficult it is to let go and keep trying not to identify and to let it go. And while we're doing that, we can also reflect on our good qualities. Just the fact that you are willing to work with your anger instead of act on it is already the sign of a follower of goodness, of purity and truth. Is this this lighter? maybe the battery is going. So therefore you have Good qualities and if you reflect on the good qualities, then that will help to balance out this angry feeling in your heart. If you're in the habit of hating yourself or not believing in yourself, not trusting yourself, this is another believing those thoughts instead of um, resting or taking refuge in your own goodness. And if you can do that for yourself, can you do that for another person? For those people who live with us. Now, the people we live with are going to see all our dirty laundry because we're not perfect. If we were perfect, we wouldn't be in the human realm unless we're bodhisattva. But we're imperfect and we, we need to bring up more compassion for others, for each other, for ourselves. So when your family members are acting in ways that you think are deplorable, well, it's only natural. People you meet on the street won't behave like that. And some of them will. Then they will cause a disturbance and maybe get arrested. But in the family, people might do terrible things things that you think, how can they do, how can they... And your blaming mind will get in in gear and find all kinds of reasons. Then you feel righteous anger, which is, there's no such thing, remember? Try to have compassion in that moment, and when you see those family members or friends doing things that you disagree with, then try to reflect on their good qualities. If you can reflect on your own good qualities, then surely we have enough love and compassion to reflect on the good qualities of those that are dear and near to us. Above all, bring out that forgiveness. Remember I was telling you this afternoon that in the Dhamma and the Vinaya, without forgiveness, we cannot... There is no Dhamma without forgiveness. Dhamma is so merciful. Dhamma and compassion are completely intertwined. Just like Dhamma and wisdom go together. Without compassion, we can't even talk about Dhamma. Really. In fact, the Buddha was probably the most compassionate of teachers. He already had his freedom. And Then, of course, he had to be asked, please, out of compassion for those with little dust in their eyes, help us to overcome this wretchedness so that we can free ourselves from the poisons of the mind. Another thing that we can do when we are caught up and overwhelmed by a storm of angry thoughts is we can reflect on kamma. It's a good way to forgive ourselves. Like you might get very impatient and give up. I always get so angry. Why am I so angry? And the whole other lecturing yourself, putting yourself down because you can't get over it. Then reflect on your karma. Or on another person's karma. When they, for again, for the umpteenth time, get impatient and angry at, at something you've said. Though you mean them really well. It's a kama. You have a kama with a person. It's just a way of letting go the complexity or um, that the situation feels very stuck. Times will happen like this. We feel like we're up against a wall. You have a, a recalcitrant child or companion or colleague and nothing that you do seems to be right. Then, again, reflect on Kama. Bring up the wholesome qualities. Try to forgive. Soften anger with Metta. We can't do it artificially, but you can try. If, it does, if you don't genuinely feel loving kindness for that person, but you keep on listening to the angry voices in your mind, then what are we doing? We're feeding the angry dog. But if you reflect on the karma that you have with this person, or on their particular habits, and try to forgive yourself, and the other person, then you can also say, "May they be well. May they be happy. May they be free from ignorance." But there might be a little note of blame in that. So just be careful. What is your motivation? What kind of agenda does your meta have? If it's unconditional metta, well it's difficult to practice metta to the person we feel hostile towards. We we know we discussed this last night. But if you can't do it, at least um think it for a while. You know, just it's not really pretending, it's just trying to substitute the angry tapes in your mind with something wholesome you may not like it and you may not believe it just like you come to the temple you, maybe you'd rather go shopping but you know you know that it's a healthy thing to do or you go on a diet even though you'd like to eat mango cake <laughs> today uh cheng and company Baked me a mango birthday cake. I've never had such a thing. It's wonderful. Thank you. You would to bake such a cake. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you made it with your intentions. What's the intention? So, you, you have to go on a Dhamma diet. So the Dhamma diet is, you know that if you listen to the Dhamma long enough, something will penetrate Something will get in there. So if you play a meta-tape in your mind instead of the angry opinions, then eventually you might start hearing it. Oh, meta. Okay, I'll try again. Or forgiveness, very important. Why should you forgive your enemy? Well, that's because we want them also to forgive us. We want that. Why should... Why wouldn't the other person have as much right to forgiveness as we have? Think like that for a moment, if possible. I'm not saying it's easy. Going on any kind of diet is hard, because we have to give up the things that are easy, the things we like, the things that make us feel good. But if we're dedicated to liberating ourselves from the poisons, then we have to make sacrifices. We have to be... Because we want to prepare ourselves to be able to face difficulties and get through them in one piece without breakdown, without being crushed and overwhelmed. Like disappointment or conflict or sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief despair, blame, praise, failure, loss, etc. All these are the parts of the worldly wings that we try our best to avoid, and yet, for those who love the Dhamma, when suffering comes, we try to go towards that suffering. So go towards the things that you fear, Go towards fear itself. Go towards anger itself. Go to the middle of your anger and examine it and see, well, what is it? What am I angry at? What am I afraid of? What am I grieving about? And if you examine and investigate in that way and contemplate the impermanence, the dukkha, of our experience, and that there is no one in there that can be demolished by these things, then we can gain some measure of balance in our response to life, to the things that life bring, brings us that we don't want, that we cannot control, we cannot prevent. So by practicing with anger in this way, we protect ourselves. We begin to take the Buddha's medicine.
1: Attachments
0: to the mobile phone. I'm for medicine. Huh? I'm for medicine. Oh, I see. Is that what that is? <laughs> <laughs> Can you please all switch off your cell phones? Unless you're uh, a doctor on call then please you can step outside and receive your call. Recently, I was conducting a meditation class, and I was very surprised that we were all meditating earnestly. You look around everyone's face, very trying, very hard. And this one person not only received the the phone call, but then proceeded to engage in a little SMS conversation. <laughs> which I don't think had anything to do with her meditation. <laughs> but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to disturb the meditators. Then I found out that they were all listening to the SMS call. <laughs> what else do we have on this list? Oh, yes. Anger has an energy. Energy. As I said to you before, sometimes this energy of anger makes us feel really alive because it gives us something to do. I'm going to go sort out that person. I'm going to tell them once and for all. Or I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to get rid of this problem. I'm going to control this situation. I'm going to prevent this from happening. Of course we can't, often, but it gives the mind a project. And the energy behind that project is akusala, isn't it? It's dangerous already. We are already falling off the roof. Or we're already about to drown. The boat is heading out to sea, and it's water coming on board. We're going out in a sinking ship. But we want to reach Nibbana. We have to have a stable vehicle. So definitely, you cannot go out in a boat of anger. But if you trust the energy of anger, the only thing that will happen when you use it is it will sink you. Then that that dark, sticky energy will keep you stuck in it. You'll be unable to float, or swim, or progress or reach the other shore, if you like that analogy better, or fly, or sail, or climb the mountain, climb beyond to the transcendent. The things of the world may make us feel good for a little while, the things that like when you solve a problem or you, you punish someone or you get revenge. It's very akusala, very dangerous. There will always be the vipaka of that action. So you don't might not taste the poison right away, but eventually you will. Because it's the law, it's the law of It's like this. There's action and result, always. You may not experience it right away, we cannot predict. But eventually, little by little by little, it's in your face again. So why should we allow ourselves to use this precious energy of the body and mind in such a dangerous and fruitless way? Instead, we can tap that energy and use it for enlightenment. Just, it's not easy, again, but the Dhamma diet is a difficult one to stay on. So patiently, we suddenly stop ourselves. You know how... You know how difficult it is when you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing, like speeding? For example, rushing, there'll be no calm to stop me. I just go through this one stop sign, it won't matter. Or that traffic light at night, nobody can see. The taxi driver that took us to the airport went through a red light. And when Yin pointed it out to him, she said, wasn't that a red light? He said, oh, yes, but nobody saw me. (laughs) Tonight, driving. No one sees. No one can see. What if nobody sees? But you see. You went through a red light. But if we use that energy not to go through the red light, safely driving along, then we don't endanger ourselves. Then we are sure to arrive. Because the samsara only gives us very te- temporary resting place. The akusala energy, we, we begin to think that it's a protection. We have to defend ourselves when we're angry. Or we ha- if somebody else is angry, we have to give it to them or stop them. But as you know, the, there are many examples in the Buddha's life where it was through nonviolence, that he stopped his enemy. Do you remember the story of the charging elephant? Then the Buddha radiated metta. Now it's very difficult if you see somebody charging towards you. (laughs) Are you you really going to just stand there and say, may you be well, may you be happy? (laughs) We don't have the, the paramita yet of the Buddha, of course, but... We try our best to use the tools of harmlessness and nonviolence to deal with anger. At least it will not poison us. If we retain a harmless posture, then we can never have any regret about what we've done. Then comes a difficult one. What if somebody threatens to kill you? What will you do? I have a very dear friend who was um, traveling in India and she told me that, by the way, I should really dedicate the retreat to her also because Greta, she, um, I, I think she has very, very advanced cancer. She won't tell what it is, but I think it's emphysema and she's in her late 70s now, very, middle 70s, very, very sick. So I just want to, Send her some uh, healing energy. So Greta told me about a monk that she met in India. He wasn't a monk, he was actually a policeman, but when she got to talk to him, she found out that, that he used to be a Tibetan monk. And when uh, Tibet was invaded by the Chinese many years ago, everyone in his monastery had to either disrobe all the monks or they were murdered. So he disrobed. And that's why he was still alive. And he escaped to India and he became a policeman. But he had just heard about a monastery in southern India and he had received money from different people to get support, to get his robes together and take ordination again. So he was gonna go back to being a monk. And we were, I remember discussing with her this question of, did he do the right thing? What do you think? Yeah, because if he allows himself to be killed, first of all, the Chinese um, soldiers commit a kusala by murdering a monk. That's a very bad karma for them. Secondly, he loses his precious life. So how can he practice dhamma if he's, you know, dead? But whether he's a monk or not, he can still, even as a policeman, he can practice dhamma. And then he's becoming a monk again. Maybe he is already now. This was quite a few years ago. So it's not clear-cut. But really we try to prevent... Harm. We try to prevent cruelty. So the poison that anger leads to, the wilderness that it leads to, why? Because one little bit of anger conditions more anger. If you get into the habit of responding to life from a place of negativity and not being in control of your senses, your speech, your thoughts, your, your mood... Your body energy, your body language. You know, some people I remember being on the train when I lived in New Zealand and a lot of the young kids there young girls even, thirteen year old girls, every third or fourth or sixth word out of their mouths was just unrepeatable. I couldn't understand why these young kids I suppose they're very angry. This, oh this is a, a culture today's children a culture of you know they have what they think the world is just going to the dogs angry dogs and in a way it is it's a wilderness of anger out there isn't it because the world is burning it's burning out of control it's burning with greed hatred and delusion and here we are trying to... Practice, meta, and restraining the senses. Taking the eight precepts. People would think you're mad on the weekend. Even you could go out to eat three times. <laughs> or just practicing delusion. You know, getting lost in computer games and loud disco music, obliterating your senses. You play most of these kids are gonna to have to wear hearing aids someday. They don't realise it. Just like overwhelm your senses with stimulation and distraction because maybe the world just feels like such an inhospitable place to them, perhaps. Or it's just what youth does. I think my parents might have said the same thing about me (laughs) thirty or forty years ago. Forty five years ago. (laughs) We have to develop this compassionate on looking. That's that's the most important thing, compassionate on-looking. Be the witness of your anger, not the perpetrator of it. If you witness to your anger, then you can intervene. So what I was trying to say, how many times do you find yourself doing something that you know is going to, maybe it's not safe or it's going to end up, it could end up in trouble, like speeding on a road, or... Drinking a little too much. But no one here drinks, of course. All keeping the fifth preset. Or eating too much. Or if you have a high cholesterol, just have another piece of cake. Because it's so nice, so good. My cholesterol can wait. But actually you're in a dangerous position. But we cannot stop ourselves. Compassionate onlooking, the compassionate witness, the Dhamma witness, has the strength of mind to stop that habit. And the Buddha gives us this instruction that if you cannot stop before you do the action, then stop in the middle. (laughs) If you're already eating the cake, just take out the balance (laughs) and give it to the dog the angry dog sweeten the angry dog if you already finished eating the cake then you can regret (laughs) I ate that cake again (laughs) it was so good but it's bad for my heart and anger is also bad for the heart you could have a heart attack. It's not funny actually. Stress. Anger leads to a lot of stress. Stress for us and stress for others. But we live in a stressful world, so it's a real conundrum. But if you cannot stop before you say the angry word, before you eat the delicious food, before you write the nasty email, then While you're writing the nasty email, just stop, get up and go for a walk. (laughs) And contemplate, what am I doing? I'm just spreading poison. I'm spreading ill will. It's It's actually just a smaller version of what terrorists are doing in the world, planting bombs here and there, hoping that lots of people will get hurt. Or it kills by those bombs. So you're just planting one little nasty seed and hoping it gets to that person and upsets them as much as they upset you. What kind of a poison is that? Oh, it's just an email. Stop in the middle. Don't send it. Okay, finish writing it and then put it in your recycle bin. But don't recycle it. <laughs> Permanently delete. But sometimes writing out your anger will help to ventilate it. Because sometimes it's just too much to hold. And then if we send the email already and then afterwards we feel so bad, especially when we get the answer back and we realize how much trouble we've caused, then we feel bad. We're in a mess. How do we get out of it? We've created some terrible karma, or then later we realize that the person that we blamed for our misery is not the one that is responsible. Then you—that's why we can't trust these minds. We have to make a commitment to take the initiative to stop ourselves, to restrain ourselves as soon as we're aware that we're performing a kusala, or something based on an emotion that is. Uh, as unwholesome as anger. And slowly, slowly, we'll be able to intervene before we send the email. And then in time to come, we'll be able to intervene before we even write it. In time to come, we'll be able to intervene when the thought arises, we'll see it immediately. No, I'm not going to let my mind entertain that kind of thought. Instead, I can practice forgiveness right here and now. I don't have to go down that road because you know the result. The result is just more anger, more misery, more wretchedness instead of spreading blessings. When I describe the Buddha as the supreme physician, the difference... In this particular lineage is that there is no Buddha out there who saves us. The Buddha is the most compassionate physician because he gives us the wisdom or the tools to grow wise enough to understand how to deal with, how to cure our own illness. But it's not enough for us to know the theory. When we study Dhamma, it's like going to med school. That's why it takes such a long time. We have to contemplate deeply and look at all the ways of our life. We have to take everything apart, piece by piece, and put it all back together according to the principles of truth, rather than ignorance. Because we've been living in ignorance for so long, we're blinded. And the Buddha, is giving us the tools to open our eyes and to see the cause of the ignorance and then to find our way through to the other side, to insight, to real vision of truth, a real understanding of truth, and then we take the medicine that heals us from this pain that seems incurable. It seems to be permanent, but it's not. It seems to kill us, but it needn't. It needn't destroy us. In fact, this anger itself can become the object of our meditation by meditating on it and knowing it as the poison that it is. We can even use it as part of our vehicle to Nibbana. The vehicle to Nibbana is not only made up of pleasant experience, of pure states, only of metta. If there was only metta, we wouldn't have to practice metta. If it was only compassion, we wouldn't have to practice compassion. Metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, they are the antidotes, they are the antibiotics. The illnesses that cause the opposites of those qualities exist in us. So in order to be able to heal ourselves of this infection based on our ignorance, we have to take these medicines and practice them. And then we overcome the suffering. And this is the Noble Eightfold Path that teaches us how to do this. Then we become really alive with Dhamma. And we do the work. It's not the Buddha out there that's doing this for us. We save ourselves. We are. We become our own doctors. This, this is a DIY project. <laughs> do you do it yourself? wonderful. That's why if people from all religions, from all walks of life, from all nationalities, get such joy when they hear the Buddha Dhamma, because it's universal, it's for everyone. So these are just some of the reflections I thought I could offer you tonight about how to heal, how to move away from the disintegrating energies of anger and learn how to feed the goodness in us. Thank you for your attention and welcome any questions. Uh, may I know whether the law of karma, of karma uh, is it compassionate and forgiving. You so in one way. The law of karma is extremely compassionate and forgiving because if we don't try to be rebellious and become swollen up with arrogance and think that we can just do this one little thing, no one will notice, if we don't give in to those kind of desires in the mind, it's actually our own wisdom, our own native wisdom that is compassionate. And the law of karma simply fulfills what we choose. If we choose to practice wholesomeness, then the law of karma gives us back wholesomeness. It's a law. And if we choose unwholesomeness, then we get the result of that. And our wisdom knows this. Therefore, it's up to us. The compassion is that, yes, if we have acted unskillfully, part of us knows that even if we're ignorant. Ignorance is not really an excuse. It's it's just a blindfold. But then we we try to find the way out of that ignorance so that we can rescue ourselves from greater harm and other people. So in that way, we ourselves hold the key to the results of our own actions. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> if I'm un- unwholesome, and uh, but at the same time, I'm compassionate and forgive myself. This compassion and forgiveness of myself will it <clears throat> will it prevent my back, karmic seat, from from uh, We can't know that. It, one of the things the Buddha recommends that we don't try to contemplate the extent, the sphere of karma because it, drives, it can drive a human being mad. We are not capable of that. We do not have Buddha wisdom. But one thing we know is that if we practice hiriyotapa to its full extent, and we feel the regret for our actions, then we would also feel the concomitant moral fear of repeating that action, because then our commitment is not is not complete, it's not developed enough, then we get back into trouble again. So it's not enough to regret your action and say, well, I'll do this, and then I'll forgive myself, and then next time I have another piece of cake. (laughs) That doesn't work. We've never learned anything. We continue to be foolish, daredevils. This time you didn't break a leg. Next time you jump from too high A cliff, you might break your neck. I'm referring to these kids in England that jump off the cliffs on the southern coast. They don't even use a bungee. They just jump off these cliffs into the ocean. Recently, a couple of them got killed and one girl permanently paralyzed. They don't think, what am I doing? They're just peer pressure. One jumps or the other one jumps. Why do they jump? Because a little bit is a daredevil. Nothing will happen to me. I'm okay. When you're young, you have more of this recklessness. As we get older, we get more scared. (laughs) Or maybe we get more wise. (laughs) Or we do other foolish things. (laughs) Some people are daredevils about very unwholesome things, like cheating on their wife. I know so many people who have been in that predicament of being cheated on and how much pain that causes not just to your own family but to the family. There's two different families that get completely destroyed in this kind of scenario. But just because for the sake of a little pleasure it's not even real pleasure. It's a deluded pleasure. When pleasure comes at such a price how could it be pleasure? This is real delusion. It's just pain wrapped up disguised, it's Mara wearing a costume, and you fall for it, because you just want that gratification. It's so selfish. It's our selfishness that gets us into trouble. As long as we think only of our own happiness, we will only bring misery to ourselves and others. And as long as we only think about the happiness of others, we will bring joy to ourselves and others. Any other question? It seems to me, all the uh, people who are kind, they are also generous, they are also not greedy, they are also very forgiving. All the wholesome qualities seem to be interconnected. And the same goes for unwholesome quality. Someone who's violent, aggressive, greedy, you know what he's going to do if you nudge into him. (laughs) Uh, So I I think that if we start out with one, then easier to get on to two, and to three, and to four, and that will characterize our personality. That's very true. Uh, am I right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but then you'll notice that if we become complacent, like, you, you know, even those of us that take the monastic life, then if you get complacent, it's very easy for Mara to make a little hole, a little crack, then crawl into that crack and become bigger. And we may not even notice, with a little bit of negligence, a little bit, you may be very generous, but that's not enough of a protection against Mara. We make one little slip. That's why the Vinaya is so important. It's like a, a net. Forget about the World Wide Web. (laughs) the real net is the Phineas it's such a protection because we follow certain ethical precepts, even if we may suffer some kind of temptation but we know that up to a certain point then beyond that we can't be in the room anymore and if we love this life we cannot go beyond that but in householder life you have much more freedom to get into those tempting And your generosity will not prevent you. Sometimes you think, oh, that wonderful person, they want to love me. So you're already married, but then you go out and offer your love to someone else. (laughs) This is not kusala. You may deliberately think that's generosity, but it's not. It's confusion. We have to have certain ethical precepts that are untouchable. Nothing, nothing moves them. We have to have enough wisdom and discernment to see what is what kind of speech to use. If even if you're very compassionate, but sometimes it's idiot compassion. We think that we're being so kind of like to your children, let them do what they want. Then they get into wrong company because you were trying to be so kind. Then you find out that you're living with A monster, a child that is on heroin or such tragedies. They start stealing, like you said, one bad quality. But all this came from a parent trying just to do good, doing the best. You buy your kids anything they want. You spoil them. You let them have all the freedom. And then suddenly you find that their their life has taken a very wrong turn because too much freedom. So there's no guarantee that if you have one kusala quality, the akusala cannot sneak in. We have to have a strong commitment to ethical practice and a strong awareness also. The compassionate onlooking of our own actions at all times It's like the internal police. Forget the police out there. It's not really a police. It's just a witness. It's just to bear witness and to be wise at every turn. To realize that Kama Vipaka, Kama Vipaka. If you're a practitioner of Dhamma, you get the result much quicker. And maybe even stronger if you do out of ignorance. Because your intention, you already know the ropes, but you stubbornly do it anyway, even though you know it's wrong. So, it's not a complete protection just to, oh, I'm such a good person now, I'm a nun or I'm a monk and I'm safe. I'm... But still we have pride and conceit. Still we might have other forms of defilement. Maybe we don't have the coarse anger that we would go out and kill someone intentionally. That we may kill the goodness in someone else just by believing in them before we've heard their side of the story. Somebody comes along and says, Oh, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so just did to me. Oh, what happened? Innocent. You know, you're just trying to help the person. Then they tell you some something about the other person, and you think, it's true. Then the next time you see that person, how can you fa- fairly receive them? You see? Already your judgment is impaired because you listened to... I mean, there's so many ways that we get tempted into misjudging situations, blaming someone the wrong way, or praising someone the wrong way. Or we get spoiled, like when, after you've been in the road for a long time, then you start, people want to do things for you, they want to wash your bowl, and they want to wash your robes, and (laughs) then. and be so kind to you. But after a while, you can become complacent. And then you begin to expect those people should feed me and they should look after me. And you start believing in your rights. But we signed up to be beggars, not to have rights. I want this kind of rice and this kind and of vegetable, vegetable, whatever. Or I want mango cake. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> but then we completely miss the boat. Actually, these practices creep in very, very easily. One of the reasons that I consciously make it a practice to wash my own bowl is because I want to stay connected to doing things with my own hands, not having people wait on me as if I were some kind of princess then it keeps reminding me that I'm here to serve the Dhamma, not to have other people serve me. It's just to keep myself on the earth. Humility cannot be bought, but at least not to prop up the ego too much. You can't just rest on your merits. And then it's just this one little, this is okay. You know, this one little thing I want, it's okay. It's very easy for the mind to delude us so much so that it gets what it wants. That gives Mara a landing strip. And we don't want Mara to land anywhere. Mara already landed. We're trying to get the rubbish out. We give ourselves boundaries. The vinyā is a boundary, it's the net, it's a protection. It's a boundary that stops us, but it also protects us from falling into hell. Without the vineyard we'll fall into hell in the next moment. Children don't know this danger. A tiny little child won't know the danger of fire and try to and then if that's how we learn.